0: Welcome to the Africa Podcast. My name is Mikey Mhenna. Today on the series, we have Bassam Haddad, who does many different things. I first found out about Bassam because he's the co-founder of Jadaliyah, which is an iconic, now I would say iconic, publication that is, has shaped people like me the way we think about the region. So Bassam, welcome to Africa. Thanks so much, man.
1: Thanks, Mikey, for having me. I've been watching you <laughs> from afar and now up close. I'm privileged to be here.
0: Okay. You are an academic, you are a writer, you're entrepreneurial, you, are, um, you work in the world of music. Typically, when you think about like, your prime motivation, how do you approach your work? What is the thing, that, the thing that primarily motivates you, primarily makes you pursue one of the dozen projects that you're produ- pursuing at the same time?
1: My public work since I was uh, a kid was driven by this idea of prison, where I would, when I was a teenager, I would be part of all sorts of activism for the causes that so many of us are part of, from Palestine to social justice and so on. And um, the concept of prison is extremely motivating for me because so many people for instance, who are in prison, especially for wrongful, uh not for wrongful doing, uh, they are not able to to make an impact. And I imagine if I were in prison, I couldn't do very much. Yeah. And then you realize you're not in prison. You can actually do anything, which is what people feel when they are caged or restricted or constricted in some way. Sometimes it's just fortune. So In my early teenage years i realized i'm not in prison i'm free i can do whatever i want so i want to act like i was in prison wishing that i weren't so i can actually have an impact and that drove me and and i think it was in the mid 80s when i was watching films frankly on palestine and um it was a huge motivating factor to actually play a role uh in public life to uh to have some positive impact and that continues to drive me in addition to so many things i picked up along the way but yeah. that that idea that you are privileged or you have opportunities which is what we were talking about earlier casually yeah. uh, and uh, i wanted to
0: put them to good use i was reading this interview and you like many people during the war like uh, my family le- left during the lebanese civil war you were sort of born and bre- uh, born and bred here left i think as like a 15 year old yeah right? so after 82 is is it that moment like you were in dc thinking back like man yeah i i could have been back there i could have been in the the stairwell uh during uh, the shelling
1: less so being in beirut because as you know you know beirut you know also yeah if we look around us people here also feel that you know supposedly they can do whatever they want it wasn't as constricting mm. but i was actually going further like being in a place like this but also even more incapacitated in some way. I think it's being in a context where uh, it's foreign, where you're looked at as not normal, in quotation marks, and uh, you have different ways of doing and thinking, and that in and of itself uh, basically teaches you how to adapt and those lessons happen anywhere but they happen faster in a place where the number of nodes or points where you actually have to adapt uh, are more intense and uh, more frequent yeah but the uh, the question of joy and i mean i was fortunate to have experienced my childhood to the fullest when you asked me earlier about what you know what motivates me and so on i mean yeah. Uh, if I wasn't doing any of these things, and I'm, I'm, I'd i be into, uh, frankly, into just entertainment and comedy.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: and I, you know, I try to make sure that I never lose that despite difficulties.
0: I want to talk a little bit into some of your scholarship. Right. I, the first time I looked you up, I was amazed at the name of this book. Okay, and you have to tell me what the title of this book is. Business Networks in Syria, the Political Economy of Authoritarian Resilience. When did you become interested in the economic side of what's happening in Syria? And interested in these, as you say, business networks?
1: My work developed based on this idea that uh, the Syrian state, Syrian regime in the early 1990s, in the 1990s, was able to balance between this uh, front, the socialist front, right, and a sort of neoliberal reality of the top echelons of the uh, officials, of the uh, business people who were actually living and leading an economic process that is anything but socialist. Uh, and all happened within the uh, rubric and context of authoritarianism. And in fact, the reason I was interested in Syria, uh, scholastically or academically, was because uh, the Syrian regime, just like most other regimes in the in the world, especially the global south, have actually shifted allegiances from being or from having labor and the uh, masses as their social base in the 60s and 70s, especially to in the 80s and 90s, having business networks and uh, business moguls and business people basically in the private sector as their social base. They ended up actually having a longer tenure. So the economy of authoritarian resilience means how you prolong your tenure as an authoritarian uh, structure by shifting alliances Towards business, which is where the world was going in the 1990s, until today, in so many ways, with some complications in the past 10, 15 years.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting to me because, like, my uh, my memories of going to Syria in the early 2000s, um, you know, you you walk in, especially when you're going from Beirut, you would see like all the cars look different, and, and it's obvious that <laughs> oh, this is a different economic climate, right? Absolutely. And the results of those restrictions both internally placed and externally placed um, were made visible. You could see, oh, wow, this is, oh, this is an interesting, uh, they have different chocolates here and they have different chips, yeah. like through the eyes of a teenager, right? Yeah, compared to the 80s. Sah, <laughs> so, right? During your pursuit of this scholarly, of writing, uh, writing this book, what surprised you? I mean, you, you came in with uh, preconceived notions about what you might find and the, the conclusions you might come to. What surprised you as you... In Syria? In in writing this book, researching and writing this book, uh, I guess what surprised me. I mean, I, it's
1: a it's not something that that I recall as something surprising. But if I have to think of something, it's uh, it's basically how uh, at some level of capital formation, at some level of capital accumulation, uh, people at that level uh, sort of prioritize capital, uh, not. What people usually think about as oh this person is uh, belongs to this sect or this religion or this political orientation even, yeah. so uh, that becomes one's ideology and uh, at at some level it's refreshing but it's not refreshing in the good way in a good way yeah uh, so that was very interesting and then when things started falling apart or when there was competition because the state that was or the regime people running the state who were trying to create another uh, leg, another uh, alliance with business, when they began to realize that it's growing beyond their control, they started actually themselves, even from the very beginning, entering into the business realm to get a part of the pie, right? And once problems started, once this started happening and there was some sort of competition, which is why in Syria they brought certain people and a very specific individual for instance who actually monopolized a plurality of private sector assets you began to see the return of the discourse that um uh, that is that is somewhat sectarian and so on and so forth so that was an interesting um uh thing
0: yeah like at, so at the at the top the only ideology is money right i mean you yeah you can reduce it to that
1: for, for right. shorthand, which is why we have what we have in lebanon for sure
0: right <laughs> Definitely. I think that's where you go. That's approach. where I'm going. I'm like, oh, yeah, of course. The only ideology is is making money. And then as you go down the ladder. And, and preserving it,
1: which is why we have the same leaders for the past 30, 40, mm. sometimes 50 years, depending on who you're looking at. And uh, yeah, uh, if you see the one constant before the Civil War, during the Civil War, after the Civil War, after Taif, after the 2005 protests after the 2019 protests and so on and so forth the one constant is not every single party or leader but the plurality of them they are the only constant and it's not just here it's it's everywhere it's in the us this republican democrat uh, rivalry i mean it's at some level it's real at another level you find that they're uh, the ones who are um in dominant uh comfortable places, uh, they also are benefiting from whoever wins.
0: What is the what is the economy like in Syria now? I mean, are you still tracking it? Or are you yeah, still having a I'm, I'm writing my, my next book. I want to ask you, what is it like? Because I've heard, um, maybe I'll just ask it directly. I've heard that uh, the drug business Captain is a huge... I knew you were going
1: to talk about CaptaCon,
0: yeah. 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 It, is, it is huge. So walk me through, like, can you give me, like, sort of, Broad, somebody who doesn't know.
1: Nobody this. has the uh, the. Nobody has precise data, but it's a it's a it's a very lucrative business, and uh, it generates an uh, inordinate amount of capital, and it's very unlikely that uh, it's something that uh, is not on the radar of the state.
0: Do we know uh, what drugs specifically are
1: being exported? Captagon okay yeah mainly i mean and uh, there are quite a few papers on it i have seen some uh, i'm not very uh, mm, i'm not very excited about some of the papers i've seen because they uh, address this uh, this drug business in ways that are divorced from other things that are happening yeah. and sometimes they uh, employ the topic to serve their political orientation and interests which is okay to an extent but when you begin realizing that um, only certain uh, parties are implicated and others that you know are involved are kind of like not addressed you begin to realize that yes this is this is a uh, this is a very uh, difficult topic to get a handle on and you you know we, we still haven't seen some of the best research and the reason also is because it's very difficult to do comprehensive research in Syria because the level of scrutiny today is even perhaps at some level worse than before uh, access is worse much worse than before there are places in Syria that you know you can't get to everywhere and if you do get everywhere you don't have the same access there are four or five uh, entities that control uh, boundaries, borders, uh, landscapes. And you. no one is actually good with all of them because they are very different.
0: Yeah. Is there like a corollary that we can look at historically that can help sort of shed some light on what this could possibly do to a society and to a culture long-term? Like, has there been a moment in time... In, in in Europe or in the Americas or in Asia or in Africa over the last 100 years where there was such economic scrutiny on a, a certain place and intense turmoil. And then all of a sudden this huge uh, sector <laughs> emerged that was like, I mean, could we look at like Colombia, like, for example, I mean,
1: Afghanistan there... with uh, with opium? And I mean, it's, it's actually not uh, very rare, especially in post-conflict situations especially in places that uh, are excluded uh, by certain parties worldwide, especially uh, the parties that are involved, including in this case, uh, the United States and its allies, right? It's, it's uh, which also were involved in um, invading, uh, but full invasion of uh, Afghanistan. So you do find these exits that people take advantage of and governments uh, are very much interested in uh, revenue whether it's for them or for the people or for people that are close to them so there is some sort of a sanction going on and uh, it's not you know rare at all but but it's not just about local and regional politics it's about how local and regional politics are framed by and constricted by much more powerful actors and i'm not just referring to the us i'm also referring to all the major actors that intervened in syria and uh, turned a really hellish situation into even more of a hellish situation, including the U.S., Russia, and all of the uh, both supporters uh, of the uh, supporters of the opposition and the state. I think everyone is implicated. With uh, the cake is of course taken by the regime for actually having a situation from the very beginning, throughout decades, where this could happen. So. They are the primary primary party responsible for what happened, even if they were not the only ones doing uh, the harm. But the the responsibility lies usually with the most powerful actor that is in control of a situation for decades on end. And that is is something that is not, I I don't think it's negotiable. If you're going to take credit, for, for instance, as they say in Syria, based on my work and my research, that you know, in, in, you, in modern Syria was built by this regime by these individuals. You also want to take credit for the falling apart of this uh, situation, even if others wish it to, to fall apart. Yeah, uh, you've got to take credit in both direction, both directions.
0: If I were to do a poll, right? Like, let's say I was to pull the Academy, Capital A Academy, everywhere. All right? hypothetically. And I wanted to ask them what do you think Syria's economy looks like in 20 years, right? And I came to you because I wanted to help design this poll. And I said Bassam, I want to give them multiple choice answers. What are the most likely the most likely answers to this thing? Would you say like Mike you need a 20 question, you need yeah, 20 things. Like this, what are the most this likely
1: This is the million dollar question. I mean, that's why <laughs> really um, because it's very difficult to gauge. First of all, what's fully what's happening in Syria today yeah. the level of misery after the deaths of some say half a million some say almost double that uh the uh, tangible destruction of uh, so many uh uh so much infrastructure in Syria and then the intangible destruction that has taken place at at, at you know other levels education psychological orientations traumas it's very difficult to gauge what is going on, especially that the regime today, even though it was able to survive is even has even clamped down even further even though it doesn't have the same capacity but it, it tries uh, and even supporters of the regime are not quote unquote reaping the benefits of having sided with the regime. so there is also some some uh, uh, serious uh, resignation and sometimes the resistance. Uh, protests even in those quarters in addition to the natural opposing quarters so what i'm trying to say is the number of factors that impinge on such prognosis are so many and much of them are sort of um, difficult to uh, gauge without serious field work what we do know is that this idea of any construction that one or many waited for to happen after the cessation of the dominant hostilities because there are still some skirmishes, but after 2018-19 you know, most dominant hostilities basically ceased, uh, didn't happen. That reconstruction didn't happen. Uh, those who invested in supporting the regime in order to get to a point where it survives, who were potentially promised to be the uh, the winners uh, of the biggest you know uh, opportunities, including Iran and Russia, for example, uh, are both having problems at home. Russia is having its war that's actually, you know, tearing at the seams of of, of, of Russian society. Iran has a, a not only serious economic problems for many years, but now has had a protest movement that is has also shaken things in Iran to the core. Um, and uh, of course, the West is not welcome. At the same time that the West, especially, I mean, that's an odd word, but. The United States has imposed sanctions on Syria, which, of course, as usual, ends up harming the people much more so than the regime. Even though it's, it's harming everyone, but it's it's definitely uh, causing a lot of pain. So you you have a, a situation of stagnation. It's it's a pretty pretty much an open question, but without a lot of uh, you know uh, evident lights at the end of the tunnel, um, the the problem in Syria remains that. It is politically a very constricted place, Uh, economically has uh, been devastated, infrastructurally uh, decimated, um, and the brain drain has, that took place, not only historically from the public sector to the private sector and the private sector to regional uh, countries, but now you have a massive human drain, not just brain drain, right? So we, we have about Six to seven million people uh, completely left Syria. We have an equivalent number who were displaced inside Syria, which also creates uncertainty. People are trying just to survive. And, you know, the pandemic was gruesome. And then uh, other endemic, you know, uh, like the cholera, the spread of the... I mean, these are things that we thought that were of a time gone by. And when they happen, their effects are exponentially multiplied because of the absence of everything right uh, from the public health system that can take care of that to uh, the ability of people to medicate um, and now with electric, electric with power cuts it's a, an uphill battle with very few uh, hopes and that's why people today from what I have seen even though they might dislike one or the other of the regional powers, they're still happy that they are talking because it, it, it's the one thing that so far that they felt has brought some some benefit. But in the final analysis, uh, it, it's going to require a lot more than that. It's also important that the, the one commodity that uh, produced billions of dollars of uh, revenue historically has been oil in Syria, and now it's not even under uh, the uh, control of the government. Whether or not one believes that they're going to do um, uh, the right thing with those resources, it's under the control of the U.S. actually and yeah. their Kurdish partners. So that that adds to the poker game that exists, which which is which prolongs it. Yeah. At the expense of the ordinary Syrian, and it doesn't mean that if they were under the control of the government, everything would be fine. But that's just another added um, obstacle to any sort of serious recovery in the short run.
0: Okay, so this actually uh, that uh, begs another question, and I didn't tell you I was going to ask you this before, so I'm going to put you on the spot. Oh, it's okay. Um, if you, I like playing this game when I look at countries, asking myself what is their business model, like just like in the most basic format, like what do they primarily do to make money, right? Um, If you were to track Syria's business model over time, um, since the establishment of, um, you know, since in the 20th century until today, what was their their business model pre-Cold War? What was their business model post-Cold War? what was and what is their business model you're now
1: you're going to hate me if I give you my real answer that's like a course that I actually give on yeah. Syria but you know l- 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 let me just be like uh, like in- instead of going too deep and then have you sort of have a heart attack because it will take up the whole time yeah uh, <laughs> it's always been uh, especially uh, let's say before uh, the 2000s it's been a mixture of Uh, some form of agro-manufacturing, some agro-export, because it's the largest sector in Syria historically, some form of manufacturing that actually increased in the 70s and 80s as a result of the oil boom, but it was affected by the oil bust and the creation of endless state-owned enterprises that produced, uh, manufactured for local and at some point for um, export purposes, Uh, and the oil sector, which is... A source of rent.
0: Can I ask a stupid question? Yeah. Where is the oil, like geographically? Like what Northeast. part of Syria?
1: Northeast. Northeast. Okay. And and kind of you know in, in pockets here and there. But there, but where the right now, if you look at the map, you yeah. know when you see who who controls, you yeah. know Idlib, who controls uh, uh, or what the regime controls, what the Turks control, what the Americans and Kurds control, Americans slash Kurds because the Kurds are not just what the Americans now. You, it's where the Americans are, yeah. and and it's 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 yeah, uh, any yani theft,
0: not 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 by accident.
1: No, I mean, uh, and uh, so these these actually connected to produce uh, wealth in Syria, and then you can add to that after the nineteen nineties, the tourism sector and the service sector, which expanded dramatically, which is what you were talking about earlier, and then of course you started getting to see, you started seeing, uh, I end the book with the uh, 2000s, where you started seeing uh, market mechanisms develop. But the problem with everything that I'm saying
0: yeah.
1: is uh, it's management uh, always involved uh, what what we call rentierism. Rentierism is, you know, uh, economic gain based on connections and uh, exceptions and distinctions rather than actual development actual entrepreneurship actual investments that uh benefit uh you know uh benefit their um basically that benefit people in a in a rational manner in a reasonable manner that comports with the uh effort placed. so you you have that rentierist economy that is based on connections and that is what my book was about the idea that state and business collude Uh, in order to preserve their wealth, expand their wealth at the expense of the average Syrian, at the expense of the productive base of the economy, and, interestingly, at the expense of the long-term development of the country. Because when you do that, you're basically pushing people who are hardworking, who are actually capable, you're pushing them outside the country, and you are uh, diminishing the reasons for which a an institution like an educational institution would develop itself and expand because uh, you are not overseeing economy that requires high skilled labor so schools and things that basically produce talent and produce know-how and skills also become uh, decrepit so that is the sad story but this third dimension people don't talk about very much because it's slow moving it's invisible but you end up in 2010 for instance even before the uprising where there's a serious shortage of the right people to do the right thing even if the right thing is actually uh, uh, formulated but usually that right thing is not even formulated so you have a you have a developmental problem And you see, like, in the United States where I live, some of the best doctors in the nation are Syrian. You look at Europe, some of the top, you know, nuclear physicists that run entire agencies are Syrian because of the uh, brain drain for political or economic reasons, not just for political reasons.
0: Yeah. Is there, ever like, whenever I hear uh, conversations about this, like these rentier states and and this, like, cyclical, um, this... uh, uh, alignment, uh, misalignment of incentives by by the sort of business elite and the political elite to make these these uh, decisions that maintain this rentier state. Right. Whenever I hear talk, conversations about it, I think, "How do we get out of this? Like, has it ever even been done? Like, once you get down this like spiral, <laughs> how, <laughs> like, do we even have a track record of if ever?" I knew the answer. Yeah.
1: <laughs> no, uh, no. I mean, look the. Uh... The, the issue is that we, uh, some people, to answer this question, they just look at you know, global capitalism, which means we're doomed, khalas, there's no exit. Yeah. Others place fault on the local players and context as though nothing else outside has constricted and constrained this context, even historically with colonialism and everything else, the theft and exploitation of resources from places like Syria which has ramifications, right? So I can't give you an answer, but I can share with you a method whereby there is no way to begin answering this question without understanding how these two um, factors or spaces interact in order to prolong the problem we're seeing. So it is local, And politics are local, and we should focus on the local. Uh, But it also is contextualized and constrained and constricted by a global political economy and particular players and actors and states that have a privileged position in this political economy uh, who actually have their own interests when it comes to places like Syria. It's clear that the allies of very powerful states, like the United States, for instance, are certain states in the region the more usually more conservative states from Saudi Arabia to Egypt and so on and so forth and Syria the Syrian regime also has friends which bailed it out starting 2015 like Russia right but in all cases this question cannot be answered without looking at both factors and I could get into them but I think uh, we will be inducing sleep (laughs)
0: <laughs> okay so we'll, we'll, we'll change the subject um when i introduced you i said i know you originally from your work with Jadalia. and i was talking to somebody about this before and they're like who is outside this space and they said what Jadaliya? like what does that word mean i said it means dialectic and they said well, what, the hell does that, <laughs> what the hell does that mean um so if you'll humor me i love good names where did the name come from what is the historical significance of the of the name and tell me the sort of like origin story of of Jadali, which i think at this point is like 15 years old or 12 12 years old yeah so oh is it 15 yeah, years 12 12 yeah
1: just this month yeah um
0: yeah so walk me through the story the name uh you're one of the co-founders uh yeah tell us a little bit well
1: there's two things uh we're in we're in I don't know if I can say we're in Hamra. Yeah, of course. You can say. Right? Spears area. Yeah. So if you go to the other Barbar,
0: yeah. which
1: is in... Abdul Aziz Hamra uh, Central. Yeah. Uh, three buildings down. Uh, it was myself, uh, Sinan Antoon, and Nur Aliqat, my, my partner. And we were uh, talking about this platform that we were all working on with two other core members and then a big network around us. And we were trying to come up with uh, names and wine was involved. And uh, <laughs> which helps. It's an apartment like I was staying here this, in the summer. We were staying yeah. my, at the time my partner, and I were staying here. Um, I think I was teaching at AUB in cool. 2010. I was here for a semester and um, we were exchanging names back and forth back and forth and none of the names for the first couple of hours and it took a long time i mean nobody liked any of the names anybody suggested including the people who suggested them yeah <laughs> and then i don't know what happened i said i got it and when i said i got it i knew that when i say it it's going to be uh acceptable a at least, drop. To, like like basically and then they kept saying what what and i'm like no i got it you know and i just wanted to confirm and then i said jadalia and then nobody said anything negative and then we all started saying that yes yes jadalia, it's a great name it, yeah it's a great name and and i and it took a couple of hours and and quite a bit of um i think it's red wine and then we launched five months before the uprising and it was actually doing far better than we thought even before the uprising when the uprisings took place, starting in December seventeenth in Tunisia, and then of course into January, um, it basically began to uh, like, exp- like literally explode because we were uh, the reason for creating Jadalia is to build the bridge from between academia or the ivory tower and the, in- the broader informed public because the broader public period, without qualification, is not interested in the material in Jadalia. They're probably more interested in newspapers and so on because it's it's a bit longer and it's a bit more tedious. But it ended up exploding because it filled that gap. And it also filled another gap, which is at the time, in 2010, if you looked at the lay of the land, you either had independent bloggers, either journalists or scholars who had their personal blogs in which they were writing interesting things, right? And there were the think tanks. And that gap be quickly became a reference point for so many because we, true, we, we many of us live in the United States, but uh, our networks that have that have start that had started twenty years before uh, lived in the region here yeah. as well as everywhere. So, people that were friends of ours living anywhere from Cairo to uh, places in Morocco, Lebanon, f- Palestine, Amman. Uh, even Turkey uh, and other parts of the Arab world, it was read as a local publication because of the people writing yeah. from the local. And that's what allowed it to sort of bridge the gap, not only between the ivory tower and the broader informed public, but also uh, bridge, bridged a gap uh, between people who were living here and people who were living outside who were interested
0: in the region. Going back to that fateful night, uh, night, the three of you are sitting around If I had asked all of you and I said, hey, listen, is this going to be like an online website? Is it going to be a website where scholars from all around the world who are focused on the region are able to publish articles about the region that are high quality in nature that could one day be published as scholarly articles, but we're going to be a little more nimble. Hmm. And that's the idea. And it's a place for us to publish. We're really focusing on the writers. There's a place for the writers to get this stuff published in a central location. Um, would you have all nodded in agreement? Or if I had said, we are focusing on the public, the public needs to read stuff and they're not getting good information. They're either getting it from these like one-off blogs that are hard to find, or they're getting it from these, think uh, tanks. think tanks that have a political bent and, a, and so, they're sort of not telling every side you of the sound story like you were at that meeting. <laughs> yeah. Is it, so my question is, is it, was it focused on the problem of the audience? Or the problem of the writers, like nah, no, we would just want to publish somewhere.
1: No, it was it was that this is a great question. It was focused primarily on the absence of uh, this kind of uh, knowledge and content being hidden in peer-reviewed journals or in academic books, and we needed to get it out because. It will have a broader public, and you can actually write for a broader public as a scholar without being as uh, uh, you know uh, obscure. That kind of knowledge didn't exist in the most open manner in the most most open format which is why when we have uh when we started when we received content it wasn't just from scholars it was basically our idea was against the peer review approach in that particular project it was more for what is a meaningful what is meaningful content and that went in whether it's politics economics hist- history uh literature uh, poetry culture. So we broke a lot of the uh, on purpose. We broke a lot of the uh, barriers to writing uh, for an informed audience or even an academic audience. And the people that th- there were there were five of us. There was nucleus of uh, it was myself, uh, Sinan Antoon, uh, Nour Aliqat, Shalih Sayali, and Maya Megdashi. And then it expanded to the twelve uh, who we invited and now we're about 16 there's some rotation uh who serve as sort of like the editorial board who, who we, serve as like contributors most we of? actually no no editorial we don't have an editorial board because like we have an editorial board at ASI which I'll talk about in a second yeah but at Jadaliya we uh, we actually didn't want to do anything like this we just have co-editors cool and then we created pages that have their own semi-autonomous co-editors that do what they need to do with their pages which is uh, country pages or topical pages? Like, we,
0: they're like subreddits almost. We have to, we <laughs> have twenty-two
1: have pages, uh, or s- p- perhaps more. Some are more dormant than others, and most are, well, many are based on countries, country pages or regional yeah. pages. Others are topical pages, and the editors that run them are uh, responsible for the content. They don't have to check with everybody, but we have a system of solidarity whereby. If people note something that is of color or kind of odd for some reason, whether it's quality or uh, requires more verifiability or what have you, we have a conversation. So it was always based on the model of the Arab Studies Institute, which is uh, solidarity, non-hierarchy that worked well because people were ownership of their own owners of their own uh, product. I mean, generally, is like 70 or 80 people, you know, all together. It's a little short, smaller now, but uh, uh, anybody can bring things to the table and uh, problem solving is based on communication, not hierarchy. You know, over the years, it's, it's been hundreds of people who came in and out and we were able so far to maintain, uh, you know, a very collegial, warm, and I would say uh, in terms of, you know, organizations, a distinct uh, atmosphere of, uh, amicability and, and even, you know, strong relations between people.
0: Amazing. You didn't tell, you didn't say why the name is so good.
1: It's easy to pronounce. Uh, it's, it's catchy, even though the word is complex. Um... And what does
0: it mean for somebody who doesn't speak English- oh, Arabic at all?
1: Idiia means dialectic. Dialectic is uh, how supposedly progress happens in uh, argumentation or even in real life situations and real developments, whereby there is a thesis and then there's a counter statement and then a synthesis of both. That connection, that tension, produces another reality. To be honest, yeah, we weren't thinking about all these things. Yeah.
0: How it I sounded
1: cool. It sounded but cool. But then when you, dig, when you dug deeper, it stayed cool.
0: Amazing. Okay. Um, I want, before we move on, because uh, I don't want to keep you here too long. What is the Arab Studies Institute? Oh, very and, quickly, because that's a... Because, like, one time we were talking on Zoom, one of the first times we, I met you, and you were telling me about the Arab Studies Institute, and you pulled out basically, like, the equivalent of, like, a 19th century scroll. You're like... And you showed me this huge yeah, chart. It's, uh, it's crazy. Yeah. But I mean, st- tell me a little bit briefly. I mean, even people who are in our
1: sort of part of, of this collective. We're a community, basically. We're a network. Yeah. We're not like a party. We're not even a, an organization proper. That you know that has these like very you know stringent uh, uh, mechanical parts. Uh, it's a uh, it's a project. It's a it's a communal. In a way a project that's based on uh, the existence of people with similar mindsets who are interested in uh, similar topics usually revolving around various dimensions of social justice also with uh, interest not just in in the world of politics, in the world of economics, in the world of culture and how we are pushing for social justice concerns within those. But also it's based on this idea that when human beings come together to do something, it's not important It's not just important what cause they're pursuing but how they are interacting together and within this context as human beings so from the very beginning from 1992 when uh, the arab studies journal as the umbrella organization of all these organizations that developed over time um, we started with uh, a non-hierarchical approach which includes mistakes and we've all been there we've all done made these mistakes but we emphasize and re-emphasize a non hierarchical approach, a solidarity based connection rather than a connection based on, you know, revenues or just outcomes. Uh, and a volunteerist spirit because we don't we didn't have money for twenty years, we operated on our pockets. It was yeah. basically us spending the money and then we got funding. But that's why it survived in a way for the past 31 years, we're getting into our 32nd year. Amazing. But it's it's very quickly, it's uh, the Arab Studies Journal, which is a peer-reviewed research journal. And then it was uh, Quilting Point, which is the film and documentary collective that produced the films that we made uh, in 2002. It's FAMA, which, which is Forum on Arab and Muslim Affairs, which is a research arm of the Arab Studies Institute where most projects are housed. It's by far the biggest collective of networks itself is a collective of various networks on various topics. And then of course it's Jederia in 2010 and then Tedwin Publishing in 2012, which took all of those work of 20 years, including new work and began publishing them in books, um, magazines, and we started receiving submissions from outside ASI to publish as, as books.
0: Do any of your peers in the academic world, look at this thing and say like, man, how how can you be bothered to do all this work? <laughs> There's so much work. You're doing so much. Like, are people befuddled by this sort of drive? Yeah, yeah. Not only you, you're you're a community of people who are doing it, but like, is this normal? Is this par for the course? No, I mean, it's... It's it's, <laughs> it's amazing actually, to me. It's, it's a little rare, because yeah. not because
1: it's do- doing what's doing. There are amazing organizations doing amazing work that we all depend on but the distinguishing aspect is how uh, is the longevity and the consistency and the fact that it keeps like not just necessarily growing because that's not always a good thing but it keeps reproducing its magic in some way Um, and uh, somebody asked me here in Lebanon Eight years ago, nine years ago, when I was interviewing them he goes what what is it what's the secret of you guys and I kept telling him oh, non hierarchy solidarity he goes no no that must not that's not be, that's not it i don't know what to tell him because I, I have no idea what to say, but you know there's also an element of um like we we were um, i don't know i mean we we actually treat each other as human beings first yeah so if you're somebody who's joining as an intern and they join these meetings where they have Essay, and nobody shoots them down because of seniority or because of age, definitely not because of gender. ASI is like really interesting in basically being extremely diverse, not even by design, it's just the way we are and who we attract. Yeah, Um, so, yeah, it is a, a bit rare in that sense. And it's a bit rare that the same people that worked together 30 years ago are still friends. And still work, except that now it's not just the 5 or 10 or 15 of us. It's about 150, 160 people. Amazing. When I started in 1992, I was a kid. So, so many of us are getting to that age where, you know, uh, you know, we're, we're, there must be, for any successful institution, a process for, longev- for, for sustenance. And that process has to involve uh, new generations, new blood, and so on. So years ago we started a process where we enacted this and pretty soon some of the names you people some people associate with the Air Studies Institute and its different you know organizations are, will change and some of them have changed yeah. and new people are actually running things in ways that many of us who started lots of this work are not all are not fully aware so there are things happening because it's a really broader yeah organization with different compartments and we try not to push asi we just push the separate things the arab studies journal uh you know the different projects we we don't always come out as asi on purpose because then we, we start believing then we become like a nation state we we start you know branding ourselves as one thing and you know kind of unintentionally asking for allegiance we try to avoid all of this that loose structure was also something that people were like how do you guys how do you guys work together isn't that disorganized and it actually is the reason we're alive you know mm-hmm. once you consolidate too much you corporatize and once you do that you lose the, the the reason why good people want to invest 15 20 hours of their time and volunteer to join you and that's why people when we call for uh, you know positions or we call them internships, we get dozens of people who want to do this voluntarily and uh, we keep reproducing uh, the same things that we do with of course with the idea that we want to uh, make things better with the idea that we want to improve and learn from people who are coming in so it's a very vibrant place because the new people the younger people that join uh, basically end up seeing themselves in the products that they produce or we work with them to produce and uh, so we keep that going and, and I'm you know I, I really want to say that it's not perfect like so many there are so many issues that take place yeah everywhere wherever you go like from the top institutions in the world to the most modest so the idea is to tackle those problems and take them seriously yeah this is what we try to do even at the expense sometimes of production at other times, at the, even at the expense of quality, we have to slow down to take care of how we're doing things as a team, as a collection of human beings. So it does it do, we move slow in some ways because we prioritize uh, the the human element that's producing the thing, not just the thing we're producing. So it's a dialectic in a way. Yeah, we can't actually produce good things unless you take care of you know things or the actual producers the people who are doing the work and those people when you are providing them with uh, space freedom autonomy they end up producing remarkable work so people say how do you let all these people come in and do whatever they want well first we don't let people come in we choose people right we we, 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 we go out and, and meet people and hang out and talk and and, and spend time with people before we actually have a, uh, a a serious onboarding process and then once people are in charge of their own products you'll be surprised how much more powerful the result is than if you actually try to micromanage. Have we micromanaged intentionally or unintentionally in the past? Absolutely and we try to reduce who's we basically the the people that have been around forever yeah or the people that you know are experts in a particular field but we always allow for this sort of a recursive relationship and one day as i'm sharing with you one of my goals personally because I'm, I'm, I'm the executive director is to not be such i you know th- this is the litmus test but then you have an issue is that who's you need somebody who's like a, bit, yeah. a bit rational to actually yeah. take on that labor. <laughs> so that takes time.
0: OK, I want to switch uh, switch gears entirely. OK, to uh, serious stuff, to serious stuff. Akhiran, we're finally going to talk about serious stuff. I want to talk about your uh, your other job, um, which is DJ mm. and which I had no idea when we, the first time we met um, you you said to me, you know, I basically paid my way through college as a DJ, and I still do this, and it's a big part of my life. Um, so, and lo and behold, I went online, I saw the, all these like uh, these incredible sets. So I'm going to ask you a basic question: What are the five faux pas that you can identify that uh, if you walk into a club or you're listening to a DJ, these five faux pas will um, immediately have you identify this DJ that. They they need to they need to work on their. Craft. I
1: mean, look, I'm uh, I started DJing. I mean, uh, I'm totally going to reveal. I mean, I started DJing in 1986, 87, and professionally in 88 when I started working at a nightclub, like actual nightclub with yeah. hundreds of people. You know, so it's been 35. Years. It's been a long time, and I haven't stopped.
0: Wait, in eighty, in eighty-five, you started.
1: Eighty, eighty-seven.
0: Eighty-seven. So you were working. You were working with vinyls, not because they were cool. That's because you, all, that's all you had.
1: there is until two thousand five. And then you moved to joggers. You, we moved to CDs yeah. starting in the nineteen nineties. So yeah. It was like a mixture of thirty percent CDs, the rest all vinyl. Yeah. Two thousand five, we began to slowly move to um, electronic uh, music, or yeah. I mean mp3s and uh, so on and uh, now you know it's it's a mixture but vinyl is very very rare yeah i still have everything but uh, because i keep them but uh, so it, it was a different world today when you walk in somewhere and you, you find people playing music i mean there uh, it's very different in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s i say you dare say until 2003 4 5 your mixing ability defined you as a good DJ. And of course, the selection, but people who mixed well, have spent years and years perfecting their beat mixing to the point where they have also developed their sense of uh, selection and music and and the journey you take people through. Uh, It was also a time when you actually played music that wasn't available unless in the early 2000s you started getting on Napster and all these things that younger kids don't know what these are of course Wire, but these are like yeah. but these are places where you started getting a hold of songs that the DJs played yeah. so going to the club was not like today going to a club was basically to also learn what the new music is because the the gap between club dance music and radio was huge today everything is yeah. very similar but you still have club music, except that it's not as frankly commercial, and it's it, it's it's where you go to the big festivals, like next week and or soon in, in in Belgium. There's this Tomorrowland festival yeah. with, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. But but of course, in venues like here in Lebanon, every once in a while they bring. So it was a different world. Uh, today, uh, the good thing that happened is that the. Uh, Music is democratized. Everybody has access, can, ha- can have access to the music. If they want to pay, if they want to look, they have access to the music. So that's a good thing. Uh, the technology to produce music and to mix music has also been democratized, which is good because people can play around and, and so on. So these are two good things. The bad things are that uh, anybody now... Can uh, be a DJ by just pushing buttons that do the mixing without the skill to actually learn how to mix, which means that you have a very large number of people, only a minority of which are able to play the right things at the right time in a place that has a certain goal, you know, certain genre or certain type of audience. So it's very easy to spot today because you go in and you immediately realize, you know, that. This situation is taking place because of the advertising, because of the popularity of this person on Instagram, not because of their mixing abilities yeah. or even the song selection. So you, you know, people come and listen to you. So now you have this phenomenon of everybody does doing it from yeah. Shaq O'Neal to, I mean, every like literally everybody. Yeah. Uh, another development that's positive is the preponderance of women entering. So this sure. is wonderful, right? but but the flip side of it is also that um, if you're a woman and you're applying somewhere or trying to work somewhere and there's somebody else who's not but has a lot more experience it's cooler to have a woman dj because it does actually bring more business and mm-hmm. it becomes a thing on instagram or, or on social media i still think it's a good thing because that's how things need to start right yeah. uh, but To walk into a place to answer your questions it's the the mixing it's the um uh the the kind of the selection so people who are usually insecure they they play their best stuff early on and then they run out so the whole party runs out of steam and then the journey if there's no journey you know that this person is not skilled even forget mixing it's not skilled at understanding that it's a journey from like 10 to 2 or 10 to 3. i used to play sometimes from 10 to ten, like we'd finish and then do after hours, which I did because in the 1990s we had a different world than I'm assuming I'm quite a bit older than you. So so in the 1990s, you know, like I would finish at three thirty and then I would go to the four to eight or four to nine after hours venue, And it was normal. Of course, there were a lot of things involved for people to to, to stay up that late and they were more popular than today at some level. But that was the world that we lived in. Today, right? It's uh, it's the uh, the red velvet, uh, you know, rope, <laughs> the champagne, the VIP sections, and the flair flare and the pomp, you know, the pomp and the prestige and the uh, um, the glitter is 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 just as important as the music. Whereas before, you would go to the club, you know, before two thousand five. I mean, this is a rough number, and you go there to dance. And, and and to listen to music, you appreciated that. Now you go to be seen, uh, and I'm not saying people didn't like to be seen, but now even if you don't like the music, you go to dance and you go to to have these uh, popped you know pictures all over your your social media. So yeah, all these things actually you can flag very easily. And you don't need to flag those things because it's the <laughs> majority of places it's yeah. going to be based on um, based on kushur, basically the emballage, yeah. not the actual content. But but that's you know that's okay.
0: Yeah. Okay. One last question before we wrap up. Um, and again, I'm going to spring this on you. And if uh, if you need time to think about it, let me know. Um, if you were to recommend to a freshman coming into your class who's like, I love. Uh, political economics and I want to study uh, I want to learn about political economics in the Middle East um, give me some book recommendations what are the first sort of like three four or five books that come to mind that you're like these these are some people um, that you should go read
1: well if you're interested in political economy uh, I mean you, you can't escape uh, in my view leading uh, Marx whether or not one supports uh, you know, Marxist politics, whether or not you understand that, you know, the world has moved on from some of the tenets, not all. uh, It's it's essential. So there's a book, there's an essential book by Robert Tucker on um, Marxist or Marxian writings, which which is the difference between Marxist and Marxian are different. Marxist is somebody who espouses Marxism or Marxist ideas. Marxian means you... Read and like Marx's actual works, mm-hmm. right? Uh, not what was made of Marx. Okay. There's a big di- distinction. So, uh, so it's by Robert Tucker. It's a red book, interestingly, and it has the the original essays written by Marx or Marx Engels, mostly mm-hmm. Marx. And that's a, a good base. Problem with recommending that is if you start with that book, ninety five percent of the people will never continue because it will it will turn them off, just because. It's especially today. So don't recommend that if you can delete that part. No, I'm joking. (laughs) Uh, But if you look at the Middle East, uh, historically, there was a book uh, titled "Political Economy of the Middle East by uh, the former president, actually, of AUB uh, and John uh, Waterbury. Yeah, John Waterbury and uh, Alan Richards and then Melanie Kamet and uh, Sadiwan and actually Uh, repurposed the book uh, which the origin was produced in 19 around 1990 but 20 years later it was reproduced by new authors they kept some they changed things and so there's that basic text it's called political economy Economy of the Middle East and then interestingly as part of our projects at the Arab Studies Institute which is called one of the projects is called political economy project uh, which produces a summer institute, which is in its seventh year this summer, and the Lebanon Dissertation Institute, which is based here as well. So that project um, includes some of a huge network of eighty people of public economists, and it keeps growing. Uh, many of us came together and produced a, a new version or a different version of that public economy text that I was referring to. It's a little bit more edgy, a little bit more critical, based on uh, different topics and countries, and it's titled. Critical Political Economy of the Middle East, and it's published by Stanford Press, and it's it it's can be found anywhere. And those two books are I actually assigned both. I don't assign just ours. I'm I'm one of the co-authors of the uh, or co-editors of this second book, and I also have a, a you know I write a chapter in it or co-write a chapter in it. And these are excellent introductions because everything else is based on either a country or a particular topic but not doesn't have this holistic approach. And I think this broader approach would be a good entry point with the uh, with the Marxist uh, or the Marxian uh, leader by Robert Tucker. I hope I'm not messing up the first name, but I think it's Robert
0: Tucker. So anyone who wants to look up Bassam's work, check out the Arab Studies Institute, which is easy to find online and Jadaliya, which is read by millions of people um, all over the world. Bassam, thanks so much, man.
1: Thank you for having me. Sorry uh, if I tawashdak. Abadan. Abadan. No, it was, so, it was so nice to have you. Thank you for having me. I, I look forward to continue to watching your work at Afikra, which is another institution that we appreciate and many of us follow, and you've talked to some of my Oh,
0: clients. yeah, for sure. And hopefully we're going to talk to more of them. Thank you. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to watch the full uncut version, go to youtube.com slash afikra. There you can see the full video versions of these podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, go to hafiketa.com where you can learn about our Zoom events, our live events in 30 different chapters around the world, our social media presence, and our podcasts and YouTube stuff. You should know that everything we do is all towards a mission of converting passive interest in the histories and cultures of the Arab world into an active intellectual curiosity. By listening to this, you're a part of that movement, so thank you for being here. If you'd like to support our work, go to afficata.com slash support and join the hundreds of people around the world who make this work possible. Thanks.